Maybe. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Ilza, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Ah, no. He's looking at you, kid. Hello, welcome to the show. Today, I've got a really interesting topic to go over with you. I think I found where they got us in a very large way in our compliance. Our compliance with what, you ask? Well, our compliance with the cops and a lot of other things. The clip you just heard was a very famous one from a movie called Casablanca. It is considered to be one of the greatest film noirs of all time, but film noir is classified very specifically. And what I found interesting about film noir, film noir, it happens to be my favorite form of old-time movies. Another thing, I've been recently watching a lot of old film noir, and I really wasn't exactly sure why I was so attracted to them. And I went looking. So I'll share with you what I found because it's actually very fascinating. Clearly, the movie industry is the Gypsy Jew division of their entertainment group, okay? And I have to say, I've been watching old film noir for several reasons until I recently started looking further. One of the reasons is because I've been looking at early hormone use. So I've been looking at old movies from the 30s, 40s. I'm moving my way up. And what I found very interesting, well, they're all flipped, okay? Every movie, everybody's flipped already. And I was watching the film Noirs to see how they use highlighting and different things because they didn't have all the surgeries back then. And what they were doing is in the old black and whites, I noticed they were heavily, heavily shading the jaws of the fake women. And it was interesting because I was learning a lot about why these fashions were in play during that time. And it was basically all to hide who they are. For example, they have a style called peplum. It was a little bit came in at the waist, sheared out the hips. Well, that was to hide the fact that these women were really men. So you'll notice in the old movies, the... I'm going to refer to them in the gender we see them in, or otherwise it could get really confusing, okay? The men you see in old movies are all typically short, okay? I learned when I did work years ago that in the old movies, they also used to make the door frames and stuff shorter to compensate for all the short actors. Well, because gypsy Jews tend to be short, I think the bottom line, and they're not all that adept at the growth hormone part. So anyway, so yeah, so the, the in the 40s and stuff, everybody had huge shoulder pads on. The men did and the women did. The women did to hide the fact they had the big male um, shoulders, and the men did to hide the fact they had those little droopy female shoulders. So it was very interesting to watch the different styles and also the furnishings. 
because when I was selling vintage, I noticed that a lot of furnishings from back then were also a lot shorter. Well, because people were shorter. Not all of us. I mean, my family is in the 5'9 to 6'1 range, but we also haven't been taking hormones. So anyway, so it's also interesting in this fact, okay? And this fact, I can only tell you based on my analysis. I think they've gotten themselves a lot dumber over the years, okay? And in the early early days of film and stuff, you can see a certain level of intelligence that you don't see now. The character development is a lot better. The, the whole thing is a lot better. Back then, they didn't do part twos of movies. The people now do part twos because they figured out part two rakes in half the money that part one did. So they had a lot of more creative elements back then that they just don't have now. So I've also been observing how has that been affecting their brain brain power? And I think that it has diminished dramatically. For example, in the 50s, we had Walter Cronkite. He was America's top guy, right? Walter had it all together. I mean, he went off to Vietnam Wars to show us that murder was good. Walter was slick, okay? Walter was very, very polished. Now, what do we have? A bunch of people with barely their wigs on straight, screaming and yelling with bugged out eyes. So, yeah, look at the difference in this long-term hormone use that I've been looking at. So, anyway, so the thing about film de was what I found attractive, and I just recently figured out why, is that they always typically have a happy ending. The cops always get the bad guys. All of this was very, very early programming, very early programming, okay? The good guy always wins, the cop gets their guy, and everybody is happy. Film noir is a cinematic term used primarily to describe stylish Hollywood crime dramas, particularly those that emphasize cynical attitudes and motivations. The 50s and 50s are generally regarded as a classic period of American film noir, Film noir of this era is associated with a low-key, black-and-white visual style that has roots in German Expressionist cinematography. Many of the prototypical stories and much of the attitude of classic noir derive from the hard-boiled school of crime fiction that emerged in the United States during the Great Depression. And I will also be touching briefly on the early days of radio drama, how slasher movies got into this, and where does Psycho, the movie Psycho, fit into all of this. So the reason I find this to be very important is this. My mother was born in 1926. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I didn't come here for your family history. (laughs) No, I'm just telling you how I generally think this likely played out, okay? My mom was born in 1926. She would have been marginally uh, involved in radio dramas, and I was born in 51, so she would have been coming right out of this film noir era. So what did that teach my mom? Well, it taught my mom a lot of attitudes. It taught her that cops are probably there to help us. It also taught her that women have straight backs, which is not true, because my entire life my mother would tell me that I needed to have better posture. Where'd she get that idea about posture from? Well, early film noir, because the women are all men. Real women do not have that straight, rigid back. We have natural curves. That's why they're doing all these surgeries now to 
try to look more like us. They put on those big butts. They call that the Brazilian butt lift. Why do they do that? Well, <laughs> got me. It's major surgery, very expensive, and you can die from it. But they do that gruesome surgery, and I'll get more into later about the, um, well, I, I would call it a certain certain condition when you self-mutilate yourself, okay? But they get into these deals, and they mutilate themselves to they do the Brazilian butt lift, and the purpose of that, it's all over now, the biggest thing. And it's mainly being done by trannies, but they're also roping in real girls. And the purpose of the BBL is to give them a waistline and to give them hips. So they're always wanting to be like us. But sorry, you can't take hormones and become a woman, okay? So the... Um, Cinema historians and critics define the category as it was widely adopted in the 70s, but most of the classic film noirs were referred to as melodramas early on. They've only recently become more defined lately, okay? Because we first had radio drama, then we had film noir, then we had, um, then they had these other dramatic shows, which I'll get into more later to help, help our minds with the crime and the cops. Um, then we also have the latest, what they call the film, film noir is only the 40s and 50s. Anything after that is post-noir. And that would include things like, I don't know, Pulp Fiction and things like that. But today I'm just going to focus on where the real brainwashing started, okay? So it's still debated among scholars. We know who those scholars are. So it's still not really clearly defined. So, But the 40s and 50s were universally declared as classic period of film to wall, okay? So films released after 1959 should generally only be listed in the list of neo-noir titles. Neo-noir is anything after 1959, okay? So we got these categories. People still haven't agreed on what goes into the categories, but just think about in terms of these year categories. Pretty significant times when you consider radio came along in the 20s, film noir and all that. So film noir encompasses a range of plots. The central figure may be a private investigator, like in The Big Sleep, a plainclothes policeman, like in The Big Heart, an aging boxer, like in The Setup, a hapless grifter, like at night in the city, a law-abiding citizen lured into a life of crime, or simply a victim of circumstance. Although film noir was originally associated with American productions, the term has been used to describe films from around the world. Many films released from the 60s onward share attributes, attributes with film noir of the classical period, but often treat its conventions self-referentially. Some refer to latter-day work as neo-noir. So the cliches of film noir have inspired parodies since the mid-40s. Film noir is always just a little bit out there, a little bit dramatic. Either you really like it, like I do, or you think it's crazy, right? So film noir is also described as essentially pessimistic. The noir stories that are regarded as most characteristic tell of people trapped in unwanted situations which in general they did not cause, but are responsible for exasperating, striving against random, uncaring fate, and frequently doomed. And usually always with a happy ending. 
<laughs> I was watching this one the other day, and this guy, his uh, his deal was that he was the town, uh, the town. Everybody picked on him in town because his dad had been a big time criminal. So he was acting out because his dad was a criminal. And of course, the one girl in town found that he was really this soft, sweet guy underneath all this. So in the end, he gets caught because he does some outrageous crime because he was. He was he was forced into it by his past, but of course his loving loving girlfriend is there, knowing that he really has a kind heart. And in the end, the sheriff, when they catch him, they go to put the cuffs on. The sheriff comes up and he says, "Not not this one, boys. I want him to walk back into town like a man. He's learned his lesson." <laughs> so yeah, the cops are always there. The cops are always uh, very woven into these stories. I really I'm going to give you some names of some good ones to watch at the very end here. It really. It really, to me, tells a tale of how they grabbed our brains at that critical junction and got us totally on board with the law, the order, the banks, the crimes. I guess if they figured they'd show us enough people robbing banks, maybe none of us would get any wild ideas. I don't know, because remember, they do these things because that's who they are. I don't think most of us probably sat around thinking about robbing banks, but they probably told us stories about robbing banks and people getting caught to get that out of our heads. See how it works? It doesn't take a lot to control a bunch of people. All it takes is basic fear, right? That basic fear that this is all you got, right? This is all you got. Because otherwise, without that fear, how could they all fly to Davos, Switzerland every year or two, or twice a year? They fly there on all their private jets. All those private jets are all lined up. How can you be that bold? I mean, really? To me, that would look like kind of an opportunity. But it's like, yeah, because they don't process fear like we do. And my book is still available for free. You can download it for free. Learn how they think in case you got one of them sitting next to you right now. So, yeah, so they don't process fear the way that we do. So they do show us some rather extremely fearful things through these movies and stuff. So, um this becomes a very interesting juncture here, okay? What it was said at the time was the films are seen as depicting a world that is inherently corrupt. Classic film noir has been associated by many critics with the American social landscape of the era, listen to this, in particular when a sense of heightened anxiety an alienation that is said to have followed World War II. This, this opinion column is said, it's as if the war and the social eruptions in its aftermath unleashed demons that had been bottled up in the national psyche. Film noir, especially those of the 50s and the height of the Red Scare, are often said to reflect cultural paranoia. Kiss Me Deadly is the film noir most recently marshaled as evidence for this claim. Kiss Me Deadly. You'll be looking for that thing. There's a few people on YouTube. You can watch them for free with maybe one ad. Film noir is often to be defined by moral ambiguity. Yet the production code obliged almost all classic noirs to see that steadfast virtue was ultimately rewarded and vice in the absence of shame and redemption. They had this production code during the time called the Hayes Production Code. And um, that was, well, <laughs> well, to, I guess, pe get people think they were doing something. So, um, 
I think I have haze down here somewhere. But anyway, so yeah, so I think by what this guy said, a sense of heightened anxiety and alienation. I think that says it all right there, right? The war released social eruptions, unleashed demons and bottled up in the national psyche. Yeah, got a lot of men who came back from war who saw a lot of murder going on, right? So anyway, so um, all this stuff is interesting at this particular juncture of time. Get their brains and get them good and get it so embedded into our minds that we see a cop car and we just like flinch, right? <laughs> so Casablanca, is it considered film noir? It's really not, but it has many elements of the genre. Mainly its setting, the mood, cinematic style, and the typical romantic lone hero. Because some think in the end, usually the man gets his woman. And if you look at Casablanca, it's a little bit more complex because the one man does get his woman, but not the one we think that should, not not Rick in Casablanca. So... Um, it includes stylish crime drama with a twisted, dark wit. Neo-noir has a similar style, but with updated themes, content style, visual elements, and media. I don't like neo-noir at all. I'm totally into film noir. But first we had, before we had all this stuff, well, <laughs> they had to tell us we had all this stuff, right? Because uh, I don't think we ever needed radios or TVs and stuff. But anyway, so... Before film noir, we had radio drama. Radio drama, they called it radio theater, audio theater, audio play, radio play, and now we have podcasts. We've kind of come full circle, right? They're purely acoustic performances on the radio with no visual component. Radio drama depends on dialogue, music, and sound effects to help the listener imagine the characters and story. And back then, people actually had the ability to concentrate on these stories. I don't see that now. Why do you think YouTube is moving towards short videos of less than two minutes? Because they now have concentration down to a level that I don't think anybody could really grasp anything longer than a few minutes at this point. And I'll be getting to that next. But first, I had to get to the initial brainwashing. Because next came the avalanche of information. And that's where we are right now. But... First, we have to understand how did we get here and how did we get all these ideas in our brains? They gave us ideas about banks. They gave us, they gave us all these ideas, but they did it through movies and what we, what we thought was fiction, right? Radio drama achieved widespread popularity with a decade of its initial development in the 1920s. By the 1940s, it was a leading international popular entertainment. With the advent of television in the 1950s, radio dramas began losing its audience. However, it remains popular in much of the world. That's another reason why I'm doing podcasts now, because podcasts, you can download them around the world much easier than video. And also, if you're somebody like me and you want to go and say what you want to say, a little bit harder to get me on audio, right? They can get me in the comments, but they can't get me and take the show down quite as easily. So, yeah, so we had radio was interesting because it actually traces its roots back to the 1880s, which ends up in our time frame here, the couple hundred range, right? So they told us we had radios in the 1880s. That came from French engineer Clement Adair. 
he'd filed an, a patent for improvements of telephone equipment in theaters, theater phones. So um, they did an early um, sketch written for the radio. The first one written for the radio was Philadelphia, oh, Pittsburgh. I, I, I keep thinking, heading back to German Philadelphia. <laughs> in 1920, newspaper accounts of the era report and a number of other dramas. So yeah, so this one, they traced it back supposedly to KYW broadcast, February 1922. And so yeah, that's when they really kicked off in the 20s. About the time they were getting ready to crash the market, rob everybody, go to war. Good times are here again. Um, yeah, so they really brought it into our brains, right? They brought it into our homes. They brought it into our psyches. Everybody was believing all this stuff. So I also did a show recently. Is the most famous radio broadcast is Orson Welles' The War of the Worlds. And I did a show about that. Not going to go into it anymore. Um, that was a very significant one at the time. I think they tricked people on purpose. But, you know, they're sticking to their story, so... But in Britain, however, during the 1930s, BBC programming tended to be higher brow, <laughs> unlike their American um, slobs. Who the American um, media messes really evolves around. This is just my view, more of a soap opera kind of element to it, right? You know, we have the soap operas, we have the lurid gossip tabs. Um, now on YouTube and different social media platforms, it's the same soap soap opera theme going, right? Everybody is calling out everybody else. So-and-so is having an affair with so It's really, we're just doing a soap opera, but now we've gone from the movies and the radios, and now we're down to the cheap versions. We got to the newscasters, who all look like they're losing their minds wearing wigs. And now we got all the um, social media people. Anybody who can own a microphone really is that group. And, yeah, so we got quite a few of them going on here, don't we? We were coming at them from all angles. Think about silence in your life, people. Just think about silence. So so in Britain, they were more um, highbrow. Yeah, we're, we're kind of the... Everybody here wants to act like they've got so much, but really beneath that, this is a country of trailer trash, okay? Let's face reality here, okay? This country is gypsy trailer trash. So while they are in the BBC doing works of Shakespeare, classical Greek drama, as well as the works of major modern playwrights such as Cheskov, Ibsen, Strint, I can't even pronounce these. You know why? Because I'm an American. <laughs> Novels and short stories were also frequently dramatized. In addition, the plays of contemporary writers and original plays were produced. T.S. Eliot did his entire play, Murder in the Cathedral, in 1936. By the 1930s, the BBC was producing twice as many plays as London's West End was producing. Yeah, BBC and we're over here producing trash, trash crime and... Women is women is avenging sluts. So anyway, um, one of the premier drama programs of the golden age of age of radio was subtitled "Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills" and focused on sus suspense thriller type scripts, usually featuring leading Hollywood actors of the era. 
Approximately 945 episodes were broadcast during its long run, and more than 900 still exist. So, um, what happens is, suspense in these things go through several major phases, characterized by different hosts, sponsors, and producers. Formula plot devices were followed for all, but a handful of episodes. They used a very specific plot, okay? The protagonist was usually a normal person suddenly dropped into a threatening or bizarre situation. Solutions were withheld until the last possible second, and evildoers were usually punished in the end. They leave out the part that evildoers are really running the world, right? So, in the early days, they did some science stuff. There's some significant um, early um, actors for the film noir genre. You want to look for Humphrey Bogart, Burt Lancaster. He used to be one of my favorites, <laughs> a woman pumped up on testosterone. Edward G. Robinson. Just saw another one of his movies the other day. I used to wonder, where did his neck go? Because men have long necks, women don't. Edward G. Robinson, what a guy. Another big one that people miss is Raymond Burr. Raymond Burr is pretty significant. He played in all those Perry Mason stories about how the lawyer actually works for you and wants to find justice. Yeah, Perry Mason, he also did a show where he was in a wheelchair as a lawyer, riding around in his wheelchair. He was so de dedicated to justice. He played a significant role in an old film noir called Rear Window that you must watch. Perry Mason also, they said that he was gay, a hidden gay actor. But Perry was really Sherry, okay? Joan Crawford, another huge film noir actress. Barbara Stanwyck. Jean Tierney. How we didn't see this one coming, I don't understand. Her name was spelled G-E-N-E. T-I-E-R-N-E-Y. Very famous film noir actor. Act. Yeah, they changed it to actor, I guess. To uh, Anyway. Gloria Swanson. Lana Turner. Hedy Lamarr, huge, huge film noir, also from Budapest. <laughs> Ava Gardner, just saw a film noir of her the other day, hadn't noticed that cleft chin of hers. Huge cleft chin on Ava Gardner. Loretta Young, big, big film noir. They even had categories of film noir's 10 most dangerous leading ladies. See, it's important that they always present women as wild, loose clever conniving sluts okay the women are always going to be the sneaky ones in the background plotting while some uh while some people may decry current cinema cinema for the domination of powerful male figures but we all know it's powerful women figures right women have a long history of commanding the screen with a ferocity ferocity to match today's superheroes throughout their time in hollywood Femme fatales have eponized both liberated on-screen women and misgenious mis mis types. I, I never can pronounce that right. But while it's easy to discount the femme fatale as a defamatory archetype of women, these characters help make female sexuality more commonplace in movie theaters. Challenging the traditional gender roles of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Women as a sexy kitten. Slot kitten, right? 
More than that, they gave actresses active parts in the movies and empowered them to take matters into their own hands. So, it's a trope that lives on today as the femme fatale. It's French for fatal woman. An archetype stretches back to ancient literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Appears in all kinds of movies from Oscar-nominated thrillers like Black Swan and cult classics like Brick and Fight Club. The Dark Knight Rises and Inception. One of the most famous ones of the film noir era that shows the woman as a sly, sexy kitten that I would encourage you to watch is one of my favorites. is called Gilda. G-I-L-D-A. It's a very famous movie starring Rita Hayworth. Rita Hayworth has that, um, they call it a widow's peak in her hair. That widow's peak is to probably position the wig. But anyway, so, yeah, Gilda, Rita Hayworth, that's the movie you want to see. What was it about? As men sailed to Europe in World War II, writers like Raymond Chandler and James M. Cain, C-A-I-N, imagined the shadowy world that their boys would return to. Tales of broken heroes held hostage by sexually empowered women took readers and viewers by storm. Few of these films was as overtly about the fear of strong women as Gilda. Hayworth uses her sexuality to get her way, but the vindictive men in her life overshadow her transgressions. In the end, Gilda becomes everything the film tries to suppress. Strong, sympathetic, and yes, decent. Always in the end. Anyways, yeah, I would really recommend watching Gilda. I'm sure you can probably find it for free. Probably one that people think about the most, as far as in this genre, is Psycho. Now, Psycho came out in 1960, so it would be kind of on the edge here, right? And Psycho was a precursor to the slasher films. Psycho is a 1960s American psychological horror thriller filmed, produced, and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The screenplay, written by Joseph Stefano, was based on the 1959 novel of the same name by Robert Block. The film stars Anthony Perkins, Janet Leigh, Vera Miles, John Gavin, and Martin Balsam. The plot centers around an encounter between on the run embezzler, which was Leigh, she was her name was Marion in the movie, and she was supposedly on the run after embezzling. Okay, and there was a private investigator and all this stuff going. On. I'm not going to spoil the plot line here. Okay, um, Psycho was seen as a departure from Hitchcock's previous film North by Northwest, as it was filmed on a lower budget in black and white by the crew of his television series. They used different camera angles during Psycho, which made it new. This film was initially considered controversial and received mixed reviews, but audience interest and outstanding box office returns prompted a major critical reevaluation. Yeah, it got a lot of awards. It's considered one of Hitchcock's best friends, best friends, best films. It has been praised as a major work of cinematic art by international film critics. Yeah, women, don't travel alone and stop in any motels along the way. (laughs) You might learn your lesson. What I found interesting about 
Hitchcock and Psycho is this. These people all say that they're Phoenicians and all that kind of garbage, right? I never noticed at the time, um, because I did watch Psycho, and I did find it rather horrifying at the time. Uh, Psycho is considered a film noir because it shares some common characteristics with those films, but remains peculiar. Um, So I think that it falls into that. But what I found interesting about Psycho, they talk about this embezzler, right? I forgot this whole part of the plot line, okay? The plot line was about this embezzler running around and ends up in this motel. That's the basic thing. But who is she? Well, she's a Phoenix secretary who embezzles $40,000 from her employer's client, goes on the run, and checks into a remote motel run by a young man under domination by his mother. Women are always just really the something else's, aren't they? Don't trust a woman. She might just flip out one morning and murder the kid's over a fight over breakfast or something. But what happened was was that we also got the slasher film, which is a subgenre of horror film. Boy, this stuff is really just positivity, isn't it? Maybe that's why they needed to bring in all these crooked therapists, straighten our minds out from all you know, it's always fill your brain with horror and then come in with a cure, right? So yeah, so there were films um, that were early influences of the slasher films, and there's a lot of them here. Um, but there's very there's so so if you want to know where the slasher films came from, they were movies like the Texas Chain- Chainsaw Massacre in '74. Those really aren't film noirs; those are slashers. <laughs> they had Halloween, that movie with Jamie Lee Curtis in 1978, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Child's Play, Candyman, Scream, I Know What You Did Last Night. Those are all considered flasher films, okay? Um, But there were some common tropes. The final girl trope is discussed in film studies as being a young woman, occasionally a young man, left alone to face the killer's advances in the movie's end. That's what... um, Lori Slott and Jamie Lee Curtis, the heroine in Halloween is an example of the typical final girl. That's what they call the final girl trope, okay? So, and I'm not going to get into the history of all these people. They're not all that interesting. But the appeal of watching people inflict violence upon each other dates back thousands of years to ancient Rome. And I think Andy probably said it the best. They really got us when they got us to watch each other punch each other in the face, okay? I, I don't believe, you know, speak, I'll speak for myself, but I, I don't think that's really who we are. But anyhow, so yeah, they got us when they go, they say it goes back to Rome, but it went back to the 50s, 40s, 20s, whatever. So um, they supposedly came up with codes along the way to get rid of some of the violence, but really, I don't think any of this stuff worked. The Hayes Code was a motion picture production code, a set of industry guidelines for self-censorship of content. It was released between 34 and 68. I think that basically the Hayes Code was really just to get people to, you know, put it out there and say, oh, this is a horrible film. Don't see it. And every flock to see it. So anyway, so then they came up with the MPAA film rating system. You know, none of this stuff matters, right? I mean, I can go right now on YouTube and see people getting new penises put on, and I don't have to be 18 or anything. So another interesting thing they did about this, and 
they did another stylistic approach was used during Hitchcock thing, and it was called. Um, uh, they call it briefly briefly appearings in films. His first one was The Lodger. He can be seen with his back to the camera in the opening scene. Another really big part that makes film noir really work is a technique called foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Early in the film, the lodger's room is shown filled with paintings of naked... I'm going to give you an example of this movie called The Lodger, okay? And what they do, it's called... We call it flashbacks, but they call it foreshadowing, okay? And how it works is early in this film, the larger's room is shown filled with paintings of naked blonde women that are the blonde victims of the Avengers. However, briefly seen among them is a painting of St. George freeing a woman from being sacrificed, implying he is not the actual killer. So what they do is they will throw in little clever plot lines through these films, which I find very interesting. I personally don't think most audiences could keep up with the plot lines in early film noir. Just saying. So um, the the one I talked about earlier, Kiss Me Deadly, very important ones. Um, Despite initial critical disapproval, it is considered one of the most important and influential film noirs of its time. Kiss Me Deadly. The film follows a private investigator in Los Angeles who becomes embroiled in a complex mystery after picking up a female hitchhiker. Yeah, it's it's. I find them interesting. I hope that this little overview will give you, um, you know, go look and just sit there and think. If you were watching this during that era, what kind of impact do you think it would have on you? The tone of film, film noir is generally regarded as downbeat. Some critics experience it as darker and overwhelmingly black. Film noir is described by tone. So it, it, a tone he seems to perceive as hopelessness. That's where you always get these very complex relationships going in film noir. And I'll give you a list of some, just, for, just a few that you might take a look at. Um, the Stranger on the Third Floor, a very good one out of 1940. The Maltese Falcon, a classic, Humphrey Bogart, 1941. Very, very good. The Big Sleep, 1946. And one of my all-time favorites with, I think it was Lana Turner, The Postman Always Rings Twice from 1946. That is good. Key Lago from 1948. Kiss Me Deadly, 1955. Touch of Evil, 1958. You want to look for Robert Mitchum, Humphrey Bogart. And I will close you off with a message here. Goodbye for now. Chat with you soon. Be back soon with how they flooded us with information. Everybody thinks, oh, information, information. More is good. More is good. Actually, no. It was another big, significant trick. Flooding people with too much information. Analysis paralysis. Goodbye for now. Chat with you later. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. 
The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. All that you can rely. No matter what the future brings, as time goes by, moonlight and love songs are never out of date. Hearts full of passion, jealousy, and hate. Woman needs man, and man must have his mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. Moonlight and love songs are never out of date. Hearts full of passion, jealousy, and hate. Woman needs. Man and man must have its mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story: a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome. Lovers, as time.